today on Dramatic Impact, Morwen Brebner's funny and inspirational speech plays well with others. I will say up front that I believe in playwriting. I believe in its future, and I believe in the Canadian theater. I would like to argue with it, though, as I imagine people from healthy families argue, <laughs> furiously knowing that underneath there is love. And the argument I would like to make is that we all need to argue more. Hello, and welcome to episode one of Dramatic Impact. I'm your host, Elaine Elrod, and this is a podcast from Theatre Alberta. In this podcast, we bring you voices and ideas from the Alberta theatre community. For our very first episode, I'm really excited to offer you this amazing speech given by Morwen Brebner. This was the keynote address at the 2007 Playworks Inc. conference that just took place this past November in Calgary. Playworks Inc. is Alberta's provincial theatre conference and is co-presented by Theatre Alberta and Alberta Playwrights Network. Morwen is a Canadian playwright and lyricist and is based in Toronto. She's a playwright in residence at Toronto's Tarragon Theatre, and as you'll hear in the speech, she's had several of her plays produced in Calgary. If you want to learn more about Morwen or more about Theatre Alberta, you can go to our website at www.theateralberta.com. And don't forget to spell theatre the Canadian way, T-H-E-A-T-R-E. The recording starts out with an introduction to Morwen given by Theatre Alberta's Executive Director, Marie Janine Willis. We didn't get the first few words of the introduction, but most of the information is there for you to hear. So without further ado, here's Morwen's keynote address with Marie's introduction. I hope you enjoy it. I'm not going to go through the entire list, but needless to say, Morwen's plays have been produced in theaters across Canada and many of them here in Calgary. She's uh, not just a writer for stage, also for television, also known for her translations and adaptations. She's one of Canada's hottest playwrights. Some of Morwin's other plays include Music for Contortionists, the award-winning musical Little Mercy's First Murder. These are all familiar in And Countdown in the title of The Optimists, The Pessimists. Translations include Strawberries in January that was done here in Calgary at ATP Playhouse Festival, as well as Matilde. And other adaptations include among the Russians for the Shaw Festival. She's been playwright in residence at Tarragon Theatre for a good long time, she says, and is a graduate of the National Theatre School Playwriting Program. So we were totally delighted when Molly agreed to come and join us for this weekend and to do the keynote address. So please join me in welcoming Warwin as she speaks to us today about playwriting, the nature of collaboration, and the theatre. I, uh... Uh, ooh, I sound so loud. Is it, I think it's too loud. No, it's good? Okay. I would like to thank um, uh, Playworks Inc. for inviting me here, and Theatre Alberta and APN. Um, I've had what I can only describe as a charmed history of being produced in Calgary, and I'm really happy to be here. I grew up in Ottawa, uh, the most passive-aggressive place in the universe. <laughs> I'm afraid of argument. I am pathologically averse to confrontation. I would rather throw myself under a train like Anna Karenina than have words even with someone with whom I vehemently disagree. A friend of mine once said, the thing about you is that you like everyone. 
No, but I hide my hostility. <laughs> I'm eager to please, and the thing I fear most is not being liked. In that way, I think I'm a lot like the Canadian theater. <laughs> or rather, I'm in an apt position to speak about the current state of playwriting, the only art I know how to practice, uh, an art with so much promise and potential to speak to the world that it's not even funny. I will say upfront that I believe in playwriting, I believe in its future, and I believe in the Canadian theater. I would like to argue with it, though, as I imagine people from healthy families argue, <laughs> furiously knowing that underneath there is love. And the argument I would like to make is that we all need to argue more. Actually, let me clarify by what I mean by argument so you don't think I mean the kind of sniping people actually do with their families. <laughs> why did you crush my dreams? Or why did you give me the Merck manual for Christmas when you know I'm a hypochondriac? <laughs> um, not that kind of argument. The Oxford English Dictionary defines argument as a heated exchange of conflicting views or a set of reasons given in support of something. A heated exchange of conflicting views, a set of reasons given in support of something. Both of these things might as well be definitions of a play. Let's just assume for now that by argument, I mean a conflict that is deeply felt, but not personal in the pejorative sense of the word. I'm not talking about being petty. Let me also clarify that I don't think the theater is in trouble. People say that theater is in trouble. The fortunes of various art forms expand and contract like asphalt in the seasons. There are people who feel that all culture is in trouble. Well, the world is in trouble. And it's up to all art forms, including theater, to confront that trouble or die. So I'd like to talk about argument in three contexts. One, argument with the world. That a play should be a set of reasons given in support of something that pertains to the state of the world and a heated exchange with the status quo and with the audience. Two, argument between ourselves. As playwrights, we don't have to agree with each other. In fact, we shouldn't. And three, argument in our process. The way we workshop and rehearse plays should be a dialectic, not a consensus. Uh, these points may not appear in that particular order. Number one, argument with the world. Uh, in preparation for this speech, I felt I should read some books about the theater. Uh, about thinking about the theater, if that makes sense. So I read The Quintessence of Ibsenism, a title you would not want to pronounce with a lisp. Uh, I'm ashamed to say I hadn't read it before. Uh, it was on the list of books I pretend I read, I'd read, I've read, along with The Brothers Karamazov and Moby Dick, which I did start. Uh, the Quintessence of Ibsenism is a book that the playwright George Bernard Shaw published in 1891. It's a short book, but it was massively influential. In it, Shaw describes the plays of Ibsen, their reception by the critics, and what they really mean. Um, I read recently, I read a quote, I can't remember by whom, that Shaw was so well read that he actually did know what everyone meant, and uh, that made him seem insincere. <laughs> Anyhow, Ibsen, the father of modern drama, a, a genre that is apparently motherless, but that's another speech, was incredibly controversial in Victorian days. Because his plays argued that the individual's moral responsibility is to his or her own will, not to the institutions, institutions such as the church or marriage. That these institutions, in fact, harmed people because they promoted abstract values over true human freedom and happiness. So in The Doll's House, or The Doll House, or one of its many titles, uh, Nora's only solution, if she wishes to be what we would now call self-actualized, is to leave the marriage that is suffocating her, although it will render her a pariah. Conversely, in Ghosts, Mrs. Alving sticks by her cheating husband, doing what is technically right, and consequently her son ends up with syphilis. Ibsen's argument that doing what's wrong is right and what's right is wrong did not go over well with critics. 
The critics hated these plays. I'm used to the Toronto critics, and even by those standards, Ibsen was received harshly. <laughs> uh, Ghosts was called an open sore, repulsive, degrading, unwholesome, and disgusting. The critics compared Ibsen essentially to a pimp, pimping his antisocial, filthy views. Uh, these same plays, of course, inspired Shaw. The quintessence of Ibsenism is Shaw's argument that Ibsenism, or the idea that you should do what you want rather than rationalizing that you want to do what you think you should do, is the way forward for society and therefore for theater. The Q of I, as I'll call it, is a polemical work of moral philosophy. And it's more about Shaw than it is about Ibsen. The Q of I was based on a lecture that Shaw gave the year before the book was written, which I like to imagine as a kind of Fidel Castro-esque harangue. Uh, Shaw being really the Castro of theater. For me, there were two, you have to think about it anyway. For me, there were two immediately interesting things about the quintessence of Ibsenism. The edition that I have is the third edition, which was published in 1922. It begins with a preface. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with Shaw, he's fond of the preface. All of his plays have lengthy prefaces instructing you on what the play is about. But the preface to the 1922 edition of the Q of I is short. In it, Shaw explains that, because the con that the context of the book, written 30 years earlier, has changed because of the First World War. He hasn't rewritten his book, but feels a need to call attention to the fact that the war, which was such a brutal catastrophe, has changed the context within which everyone is writing. He acknowledges that if the book were a post-war book, it would be a different book. He writes, quote, but I cannot spend the rest of my life drawing the moral of the war. It must suffice to say here that as war throws back civilization inevitably, leaving everything worse than it was, old books on morals become new and topical again, and old prophets are read with a new sense of the importance of their message. That is perhaps why a new edition of this book is demanded. Then on the next page, there's a preface to the 1913 edition of the book, where Shaw 10 years earlier contextualizes his book for that time. Ibsen has been accepted into the Pantheon, Shaw's older, blah, blah, blah. Shaw's still not going to rewrite his book, but he feels the need to point out the new context. Then there's the first preface, which I won't go into. Um, what's interesting about this, aside from Shaw's general egomania and believing that the world was demanding his slim volume, is that it shows that Shaw was in constant conversation with himself and with the political and social world he lived in. He was acutely aware of his time and the place of his art within it. In his book, he said he was trying to, quote, distill the quintessence of Ibsen's message to his age. And that idea that your play is your message to your age is crucial. That's what writing a play is. It's your message to your age. It presumes that you are embedded in your time, engaged in its struggles, and that you have things to say, vital things, in your play that are more than just about you and your feelings. I would like to digress for a second and talk about the subconscious. Uh, despite what I'm going to say in a few moments, I actually believe we undervalue the place of the subconscious in writing plays. Uh, you cannot consciously think of every element of a play. Uh, writers, Shaw aside, are not usually intellectuals, and a play is not a treatise or an essay. I had a teacher in theater school who insisted that you should be able to write a log line for your play. A log line is a screenwriting term for a sentence that summarizes your project. It works for simple ideas. Two sexy renegade cops solve crimes in Miami. Three sexy friends have sex in New York. Three playmates have sex with Hugh Hefner while living in his house. Um, the idea that you can do this for a complex work of art is ludicrous. In the Q of I, Shaw puts it well when he says that, quote, the evidence of a discernible and perfectly definite thesis in a poet's work by no means depends on the completeness of his own intellectual consciousness of it. In other smaller words, 
uh, a writer can have a message and a strong point of view without being able to define it. Uh, for instance, Harold Pinter claims that he writes largely subconsciously. The subconscious is a great distiller of meaning. So much of writing takes place in the weirder nether realms of the mind. I'm always amazed when people read Shakespeare and try to parse every word. I can't believe, genius though he was, that even Shakespeare was fully conscious as he was writing. It would be like a tennis player trying to serve while noticing all the mechanics of her wrist and elbow and shoulder and ankles. You would cramp up and fall over. <laughs> as a playwright, the point is to acquire enough craft that you can channel all the detritus you're constantly skimming off the sur surface of life and mix it up with memory and experience and where whatever ideas you're having and come up with something surprising and new. A lot of this essentially alchemical work needs to be subconscious. I once wrote a short story in high school. The assignment was to include a central metaphor. My metaphor was a knife, which represented the terrible divisions in the household. The story was called The Knife. It ended with the main character stabbed in the stomach, rolling around on the lawn saying, The Knife, The Knife. <laughs> The subconscious makes more interesting connections than that. <laughs> At its best, the act of writing has an organic flow that feels, if not effortless, overwhelming. You do hear the stereotypical voices speaking as if they were other people crammed inside your head. You feel overtaken by a kind of velocity. You feel an instrument of what is being written. This act of imagining in which you feel the most yourself and yet greater than yourself is not something anybody can produce merely by a conscious act of will. You remember your childhood, think of whatever events most affected you, remember the way furniture was arranged in the shabby house where you grew up. This alchemizes. If you're Arthur Miller, you get Death of a Salesman. If you're Tennessee Williams, you get The Glass Menagerie. If you're me, you get a first play your mother refuses to see <laughs> and then is never produced again. Um, we have become very scientific with our dramaturgy. And with this comes the presumption that all plays have problems that can be solved by rational means. I don't think this is true. An idea bound by the subconscious has a very tight warp and weft. It's a piece of silk, not a potholder you wove at camp. It must be unpicked carefully, if at all. Sometimes a play's strengths are a function of its weaknesses. Sometimes its weaknesses are a function of its weaknesses. Um, but how do you know which is which? What is a technical problem? A scene ends twice and is too long? Or what is simply something that was dictated subconsciously and has yet to be figured out? The scene is too long, but if we could think about it in a new way, we would realize that the second ending is actually a vital escalation of the action. The scene then is not too long. But how do you know which point of view is right? In other words, if we accept that a play is not, in fact, rationally constructed, we can't rationally deconstruct it in hopes of fixing it. We have to accept that given a certain level of artistry, it is what it is and it has to be taken as such. So instead of saying, this doesn't work when a play fails to conform to our expectations, maybe instead we should say, how does this work? Um, for instance, I wrote a play called The Optimists, which looks pretty much like a realistic comedy. Um, I don't think of it like that. I'm interested in the way time works on stage. And I was trying to compress the action of that play without it showing. This is not an idea covered in traditional dramaturgical discussions, and I'm not an especially articulate uh, describer of my own work. But this did become part of the discussion when the play was first produced, because the director was committed to investigating how the play worked. We argued all the time. It was horrible uh, and nerve-wracking. I lost weight. Uh, the skin on my face cracked with the stress and exposure to the fiendishly dry Calgary air. <laughs> As I walked from mall to mall after being kicked out of rehearsal, <laughs> 
but it was a successful process. So I believe we must argue more in rehearsal. Uh, dramaturgy is not the problem. On some level, complaining about dramaturgy is like saying you got a bad nose job. Um, there's culpability on both sides. <laughs> Theater is a collaborative medium. Collaboration understood not in the Vichy government sense as a series of constant and compromising capitulations, but as a dialectical process where, by advocating strongly for your own position, you add to the tensile strength of the entire endeavor. As a playwright, it is perfectly reasonable to assume that you know more about your play than anyone else does. And your place in rehearsal is to defend the thing you birthed as fiercely as you possibly can without undermining and destroying the rehearsal process that is there to bring it fully to life. If you're lucky, your director and actors will do the same, and the end production will benefit from the rigors of being forged in that crucible. A strong belief in one's own idiosyncratic version of the world is something I believe playwrights should cultivate from the beginning. It doesn't matter if it's your first play. When I started writing, I benefited immensely from being crazy. <laughs> and I don't really mean that as a joke. Uh, I was like a poorly socialized hyena with no interpersonal skills. I was constantly combative and angry, especially with people who were helping me. I believed, probably wrongly, that what I was writing was new. And I believed, and, I, uh, al uh, and although I often felt beleaguered, and indeed heartbroken when people didn't understand what I was trying to say. I was crazy enough to believe it was important. Now some of what I argued for seems silly. For instance, the maddening overpunctuation I fought to retain when my first play was published. Or my refusal to change one pronoun in one song in another play. Or the time I lay on the floor in the fetal position in the theater moaning with my sweater over my head during a preview of another play. <laughs> These weren't necessarily good choices. <laughs> and they required a kind of manic intensity that I'm not sure I could recreate. But they were part of my argument at the time. Other people argued back, and I learned. The unspoken truth is that being good doesn't help you as an artist. Being intransigent or defensive doesn't either. And there's probably some optimal happy medium between openness and protectiveness, wherein you can both safeguard your vision and advance your craft. But in the end, as the writer, you're responsible for what you write. Your play is your argument with the world, and you have to stand by it. You have to stick up for it like it's the odd kid on the bus who has to wear a hockey helmet everywhere. You must be your play's protector. That was a digression within a digression. So to reiterate, the subconscious is good. It's necessary. But it's not enough. As playwrights, we can't be dreaming, even lucid dreaming. We have to be awake. We have to be conscious. What do I mean by conscious? In The Quintessence of Ibsenism, Shaw contends that Ibsen only became a great playwright after he became intellectually conscious of what he was trying to achieve. Ibsen's earlier poetical dramas like Peer Gint and Brand are sprawling, picaresque fantasias. They're trying to articulate some things about the individual's relationship to society. And if you can figure out what's going on amidst the orgies and glaciers and mountain panoramas and trolls and metaphorical onions, you can glean some things. But Shaw rightly points out that after Ibsen becomes conscious of what he is doing, his work improves. Like Robert Johnson, he comes back from the crossroads with scary new powers. Knowing that he wants to directly engage the world and its problems, he writes Ghost, The Doll's House, The Wild Duck, and Hedda Gabler he would not have had the same impact on the world if he had kept unspooling his wacky Nordic adventure stories. <laughs> Looking inward to his imagination was not enough to make Ibsen a great playwright. He had to look outward 
to the world. This is true of all great playwrights. It's true of Chekhov, who channeled the minutiae and greater currents of a world too insular to know it was fading away. It's true of Beckett, a miracle worker who could look out by looking in, and who invented a form commensurate with a newly fragmented post-war world held hostage by nuclear bombs. It's true of Carol Churchill, the English playwright, whose great subject is politics, and whose entire oeuvre is a rebuke to Margaret Thatcher's assertion that society does not exist. But it's dicey to leave important works to geniuses. And I think now, especially, it's incumbent upon all of us to look outward. Um, I feel I'm at a crossroads in my own work. I wish often that the devil would show up and help me up. But I don't believe in him, and he's not going to. So I am doing my damnedest to become intellectually conscious and outward looking. And I'll tell you, it's a hell of a struggle. I have, in my short career, voraciously strip-lined my own internal preoccupations. Some of these I used to feel were inherently political growing up poor in a country that doesn't acknowledge poor people, except in kitschy ways, for instance, being a feminist. I felt these gave me a different perspective on a largely middle-class art form. But I think I have, in general, relied too heavily on my subconscious, and it's no longer enough. My argument with the world has been largely an argument with myself, or facets of myself. That's true of a lot of plays. This is a generalization, so don't take offense if you're the exception. But playwrights are still pretty heavily chained to the kitchen sink in this country. We're a bit like the domesticated zombie in Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> Capable of damage, but subdued by the cozy lure of domesticity. A symptom of this is our lack of formal innovation, our lack of concern with form in general. This is where I argue with other playwrights. Um, I've stopped knowing what structure is. I'm, in fact, beginning to believe that talking about structure is beside the point. Um, structure is actually a subset of form, which is linked to content. Three acts is a structure, the three-act play is a form, if that follows. The hand is the form, the fingers are the structure, and the purpose is to be able to open doors or crack lobsters. New purposes demand new forms. The realistic play with scenes separated with transitions in production is the dominant form in this country. English, Canada, I mean. This is not true of other countries, and I wonder why it is here. I like that form, but it can only say certain things. And I believe that part of becoming conscious of what you're trying to achieve as a playwright includes exploring your formal options. I can't think of a single Canadian playwright I know, and I include myself in this, who is a real formalist. I would love someone to argue this point with me, by the way. I mean a hardcore formalist, Carol Churchill, or the Belgian playwright I met who wrote a play, a comedy, about a man considering killing his mother. Um, the first part of the play was a long internal monologue meant to be performed by an indeterminate number of actors. The second part was a dialogue between the man and his family. The third was the murder, which was written completely in onomatopoeia, or sounds. And uh, the end was a series of four short poems with words missing. Uh, she invented this form to suit her subject. Um, and form, in fact, is her major concern as a playwright. This doesn't have to be true of every writer, but it's a strand of theater's argument with itself that is missing here. Uh, I'm talking about old school plays the kind you write in a room by yourself. Maybe you talk to some people, you do some research, but at some point you write it all down by yourself in a little room. This is absolutely not the only way to write a play. Um, at the last Dora Awards, which are the uh, Toronto Betty Mitchells, uh, in the independent category, four out of five of the nominees for Best New Play were not traditional plays, but devised works created by a collective or a company of actors and a director. I'm cool with that. I know it sounds like I'm protesting too much. Yeah, I'm cool. Date whoever you like. <laughs> um, you don't have to inhibit one art form to promote another. 
But I do think that, and here again I generalize, the traditionally written play is like a squirrel that has tunneled into the walls and is in danger of suffocating in the insulation. In a world where our very physical existence is imperiled by global warming, where we know this but do nothing substantial to stop it, where competition for resources and space is driving elephants crazy to the point where they're raping rhinoceroses, where people are being killed in genocides and ill-considered wars, where the Arctic is melting and the Globe and Mail is excited about shipping routes, where political discourse is increasingly brainless, where post-feminism is re-rendering women into blow-up dolls, where photographers are more interested in Britney Spears than a devastating fire, where class and income divisions are increasing and even middle-class families dwell like polar bears on unstable ice flows, thinking rich while being one sunshiny day away from drowning in debt, in a world where if you do yoga, you're an altruist, in a world where you have to take your you have to take your shoes off to fly on a plane. In a world where we are so overstimulated by fear and worry about the future that it seems almost more sensible to look inward than to risk being blinded by the shrapnel flying everywhere. I am sorry, but in that world, I'm not sure that a play about anyone's feelings about their mean family or their quirky sexual awakening really cuts it anymore. <laughs> we have simply got to be more conscious, more aware, more concerned, and more serious, or we will become irrelevant. That said, um, a world comprised of only agitprop would be hell. Uh, like Soviet communism, it would be fun for a week, and then it would pale. There are many ways to engage the world. Collective creations and verbatim theater are good at putting a kaleidoscope of experience on stage. A play is good at distilling the world into a diamond, where the facets are smaller but gleam more brightly. Uh, I'm working on a comedy right now. It's not directly about global warming or set in Iraq or about a family losing its house in the American subprime mortgage crisis, but I hope that it will feel like a play that could only be written at a time when these things are true. And I hope it will speak to this time in a way that says more than just, I'm lost, help me. I hope it will be an argument for something and not just against something, which has been my habit. Audiences are hungry to be confronted with the truth about the world. It's so true. Playwrights are crazy not to want some of that action. Um, movies, music, novels, even TV, some playwrights too, but we have to try harder. I truly believe that most writers write because they don't see themselves represented in the world. We write to remake the world in our image. But in order for playwriting to really be part of the cultural conversation in this country, we have to engage with more than just our own fixations. <coughs> I was on a panel recently, and a writer from France said that the theater is like a courtroom. The audience is there, and you have to make your case. It's classic to say that the theater is a sacred space, like a church. Either way, it's a receptive space that is inherently set up for dialogue, for argument. A novelist has many readers in separate rooms. A playwright engages the collective. Our engagement with this collective audience can be incredibly deep. Um, we don't just have to offer pleasure in return for applause. To return to the family metaphor, if you don't fight with someone, you don't really care about them. So let's fight with the audience more. Why not? It'll be fun. <laughs> let's argue with other playwrights too. Let's have crazy rivalries. Let's encourage artistic directors to program plays that make them nervous. But most of all, let's write plays that make us nervous ourselves. Um, to quote Shaw, quoting Ibsen, we must question the old beauty that is no longer beautiful and the new beauty that is no longer true. We must find new, unbeautiful truths. And even if everyone disagrees with us, we must put them on stage. Thank you.
In this next part of our live recording, Morwin addresses questions from the audience. As you'll hear, the audience was made up of theater students, artists, and other theater practitioners. Morwin's responses to their questions provided all of us with even more food for thought. Thank you. Thank you. I'm supposed to ask if anyone has any questions. <laughs> um, you mentioned that realism was the dominant uh, mode of um, yeah. playwriting in Canada. Do you, why? Why do you think that? I don't know. You know, it's interesting. I think part of it is because playwriting, we don't have as long a history of playwriting. It's true in the States as well, actually. And I think that our, the history of playwriting isn't tied in with uh, any kind of intellectual history in this country. You know what I mean? Like, we, our criticism of plays, we don't have a long continuity of a discourse around theater in, in that kind of way. We have reviews, but we don't have real criticism. So I feel like playwriting here is more tied into a kind of storytelling. You know, like plays that, are, that come sort of out of, of, you know, telling Canadian stories, but in terms of form, as a, being a formalist requires a kind of intellectual infrastructure where you're sort of, you have a long history with something and you're about changing it, I think. Yeah, but it is interesting, you know, in Quebec, they have the opposite problem. Like, we, we have such, um, people are always dazzled by theater from Quebec. If you speak French, you're less dazzled. Because sometimes there's a lot of form and the content is not there. And so it's a real question, but I think also, you know, we're, I don't know, maybe it's the land. I was talking to a playwright from Syria, and I said, you know, we're all so far away from each other. Um, so there often isn't that concentration of, uh, you know, where there are a lot of people and it's incredibly competitive and it's very, you know, people aren't pushing, pushing, pushing the boundaries. And a lot of people, you know, I was, I was thinking about this because of these playwrights um, with this uh, group from sort of, they were players from Lebanon and Syria and France and Belgium who I met. And they found, they were so surprised that we were still so tethered to uh, mounting our plays realistically. And um, my partner is an actor, and he said something which, is, which made a lot of sense to me, which is that if in the script it says we're in a kitchen, we don't have to show a kitchen because it's a redundancy, you know? And I, I just, I don't know what it is, but I really feel like it would be great for us to question that more. I don't think I really answered it. I was just sort of winging it there. But. <laughs> yes? When heading into uh, a process, a dramaturgical process where it's before the show is going into rehearsal, what do you, do you have certain goals that you go, okay, we're going to focus on this, or is it just see what comes out? How do you approach that? Well, I'm not so good with dramaturgy, <laughs> which you may recall, but um, I don't know, you know, I mean, I, I feel like it's so hard for me. I don't like to rewrite in rehearsal. I don't feel like I do my best thinking on the fly, like, and the thing already has its own integrity, so I just, I really don't like that. Um, and I tend to show things very late um, when I really have a solid draft because I just, I don't know, you know, I, it's really hard. I, I don't, traditional dramaturgy, qua dramaturgy, I've, I've managed to develop largely without it, and I've protected myself from it. But that said, I show things to people a lot, you know, and just, it's, you know what the most productive dramaturgy is? Honestly, it's hearing the play. It's hearing the play read by actors. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but you hear it and then you know what's wrong with it. And then I just tr try and hear it. I figure out what's wrong. I figure out what I can fix. 
I figure out what I can't fix and just have to live with, you know? And then I, uh, and sometimes you don't, I don't realize it until after the play's been produced. And then I go, oh, and then I hope for a second production. You know, like for instance, you know, with the Optimist Lindsay, like after I did it, I realized that Margie, um, the character that Lindsay played, needed some talking before she came into the scene. Like there was, she had, you had to, she had to enter, enter cold. And so I wrote a monologue for it, and I wish I'd been able to do that before the production. But I don't have my wits about me, so. <laughs> I don't know. It's really hard. It, the hardest thing is to learn how to filter information and take criticism and figure out what's helping you and what's not, and how to stay yourself in that process and not just become, you know, you're, you can, yourself can dissolve under everyone's demands and what people are saying to you. And it's very hard to retain, and it helps to have a collaborator who really does believe in what you're, a director who believes in what you're writing and likes it, doesn't wish it was different. I wish I had an answer for that. It's so hard. I'm here to non-answer any of your questions. <laughs> yes? Uh, I was wondering if you thought the, the, one of the forms that seems to be more popular in playwriting now seems to be more episodic, and I wonder if you thought if, if, if anybody thinks it might be influenced by television, because I'm seeing a lot of plays that look like they would be better on TV, and that's really disappointing. Interesting. I, that, that, that things seem to be less theatrical somehow. Yeah, I don't know, you know. I mean, I write for TV, and I, it's very hard. People think it's easy and there's a formula, but it's not. It's really hard, but it is a totally different medium. Um, so I don't know, you know, maybe. But I, I think, I don't know. I actually don't know how to answer that. See? Sorry. I know. I'm telling you. I can't tell you anything. Um, yes, I think that we're influenced by TV because it's easy to watch. You know, it's easy to watch TV. TV's very narrative heavy. You turn it on, someone's murdered, the murder gets solved, right? Like, that's great. <laughs> it is great. Um, I love it, but I also, but I feel like theater has, it does. Theater has possibilities that are, that are theatrical. Um, but I think, you know, film is that way too. Like, we've become lured by that films are realistic. And when you see a film that has a non-naturalistic uh, convention in it, it's always surprising. And film didn't start out that way. That's just the convention that we all accept now, that that's what films are. And so television makes us think storytelling is about, um, you know, uh, this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. And sometimes uh, in dramaturgy, people say you have to explain more. But sometimes in theater, you have to explain less. So yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. It's hard. When you work in television, it's hard to ha not have that bleed. A lot of people say that. Um, anything else? Yeah? To thank you for the uh, when you mentioned about the subconscious and that that really hit me hard and, and something that I really think about and maybe I, I would use the term nonlinear maybe I don't know if that's what you're trying to say sure the, yeah the subconscious is totally nonlinear could be nonlinear yep. and sometimes that's because we don't know what it is it, we're we're afraid of that you know yeah because it's got to be a nice little tight story and well, where's that coming from you know that sort of thing but. It's very powerful when it works, right? When the nonlinear. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. Do you do you feel that uh, you talked about sort of collectives and, and creation-based processes as being more, uh, perhaps more engaged on the on a content side? But do you also find that, that they are? It's that kind of creative process that's engaging more with playing with alternative forms and. I think, I think they are more engaged with playing with form, yeah. And I wonder if that's because they're director-centered often. Um, 
So yeah, I do think so, actually. And is there, I guess the other question is, is there value in that in terms of uh, broadening the scope and getting us out of kitchen-based plays? Yeah, there's, I mean, there is value in it. I mean, part of it is like seeing what's around and what you can use, right? Like, see everything. And even if it's not what you're doing, there's, there's something in it you can steal. <laughs> you know, but it's true. I saw an amazing collective piece in Toronto by this group called Blue Mouth Inc. And they, I think they're partially based in New York, which I'm sure they just did to be more credible. But um, I didn't say that, although I'm being recorded. <laughs> Maybe I should turn it off. But it was great. And there was, um, I, I talked about this, I think, yesterday in the musical thing. There was some musical stuff in it that was amazing. And I've been trying to figure out forever how to get a dance number in the middle of a straight play that isn't a play within a play. Because I love it. And I think it was amazing. And it was like zombie themed. And it was like the music was incredible. And it was really like it was the most alive I've felt in the theater in a long time. It was amazing, you know? But. And the whole th th the evening was great, but what it didn't have that a play can have is that focus, right? And so it's like trying to figure out how to make use of conventions within, you know, as a writer, you know, if that's what you do, and bring to them the focus and the point of view that collectives often lack. And like Black Watch, the play that's playing, it's playing in New York right now, it's a Scottish play about a regiment that's a military regiment part that's in Iraq right now, but it, it's the history of it. And I really desperately want to see that show. And it's verbatim theater, but it was shaped by a playwright. So I think it has that. It's sort of best of both worlds. So I think it's, yeah, I mean, the it, we can expand our consciousness of what we think a play is. You know, a play is anything you write down and then you put it on stage. Yes? Um, when you're talking about Canadian plays, you seem to view Quebec as a separate entity. How do you think that that has evolved? There are two different <coughs> styles within one country. You're saying, like, when you mm -hmm. like, the British playwrights and French, they all seem to merge together. How do you think? Do you think it's because of the language barrier or yeah. culture? No, I mean, Quebec is just such a different place that way and has been more connected to France and connected to different tr traditions of writing. And it's, you know, culturally, we don't have. Um, like even at, I went to the National Theatre School and there's a French section and an English section and the school is not bilingual, it's co-lingual. So the French work was always really different from the English work and I remember when Monique Mercure was the head of the school, the figurehead, the, great, the queen of the school, um, she came one day to see a production that the, the English students were doing and she said, why are English plays always so brown? <laughs> and she couldn't understand it, you know, it's just... Uh, it's a it's a more visual it's a more visual culture of producing plays and you know and some of it you know like Calbon Catals there's a lot of movement theater there's a lot of stuff like that and some of it's great and some of it looks like it was made in the 80s you know it's it's, it's just a different tradition. Thank you. I'm going to wrap things up just because time is keeping on. But thank you, Morley, so much. Thank you. Thank you all so much. That's it for episode one. Look for the next episode in early February. And if you subscribe to Dramatic Impact, new episodes will automatically be downloaded to your computer as soon as they're available. If you have any feedback to give us, you can send us an email at programmer at I'm Elaine Elrod. So long until next time. Mm -hmm.